This is Mark Lieberman, the host of The World According to Mark. And if you're hearing the show, you're hearing it on any of the usual podcast platforms, as well as possibly on the, one of the Pacifica networks or on Facebook. So we can get this show in multiple ways. And I'm thankful that you're tuning in. My guest today is Terry Van Dyne, who was a former Democratic member of the North Carolina Senate, having represented District 49, which encompasses most of Asheville and Buncombe County, North Carolina. For those of you who are not as familiar as we are with geography and politics in North Carolina, uh, that district tends to be a more progressive slash liberal district, more democratic district. And Ms. Van Dyne held uh, onto her seat from and served from 2014 to 2021. She did um, venture into a race for the Lieutenant Governorship in 2020, and uh, she finished second in the primaries. And she has now transitioned into, I say transition, but as you'll find out when I stop talking and she does, she still has the same passions for political and social issues, but she's doing it from the vantage point of advocacy for uh, various nonprofits, as well as some other governmental institutions. And so I want to, without further ado, welcome Terry Van Dyne onto the show. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. So you decided um, not to uh, relax in Florida or Vail, Colorado. Or Asheville. Or, but you have Asheville, and right, and and... Um, as a former uh, Senate representative, you're very familiar with the road travel between Asheville to Raleigh, the state's capital. But even though you're no longer a member of the Senate itself, you still travel those roads. So you're a person on the go. And tell us um, how you sort of managed the transition and tell us a little bit more than I have about what organizations um, you're very involved with and some of the policies and social issues that you're championing. Well, um, I loved uh, representing Buncombe County in the North Carolina Senate. It was such a privilege. And I am so grateful to the people of Buncombe County for giving me that opportunity. Um, but I'm, uh, equally pleased to be back in Asheville. I was inspired to go into public service because of the incredibly robust and committed uh, nonprofit community in Asheville. And I had the privilege of serving on a number of boards here. And I, you know, I learned a lot about um, what happens when people um, can't afford to go to the doctor or have to worry about their kids' education or um, don't have enough to eat. So uh, that got me involved in public policy. And, um, and, and, but I am still a believer in the importance of public policy in changing people's lives. And so um, fortunately, 
some of the groups I was working with before I went into the General Assembly um, asked me to come back. And some new ones asked if I would help out. And so um, I am currently, uh, the, the governor appointed me to the uh, North Carolina Board of Community Colleges. And um, that's an amazing, amazing organization that kind of oversees our, our great 58. We have 58 wonderful community colleges across the state. Um, I'm also on the board of NC Child, which is um, an advocacy group in Raleigh that um, primarily focuses on the issues that affect North Carolina children and their families. Um, another statewide board I'm on is the Justice Center. They're also an advocacy group, but they're um, in addition to that, they're uh, a um, law firm. And so um, they take cases at the state level primarily to influence um, public policy. And they have a daily presence in the General Assembly and they advocate for North Carolina um, where uh, everyone can eat, uh, live their fullest lives. Um, it, locally, I am on the board of Pisco Legal Services. And um, I, PISCA is near and dear to me. I have learned so much from um, my association with PISCA. I was served on that board for probably 10 years before I went into the General Assembly. And um, what they taught me, I, I had this misconception that, you know, if you played by the rules, why would you ever need an attorney? But what I learned was that um, if you're low income, you are easy prey. And life is complicated. And sometimes um, you, you need help in an abusive relationship, or sometimes you need help um, navigating how to get uh, benefits that you're totally entitled to um, from the government. Um, and sometimes you just need help securing safe housing. So um, I had the, the opportunity at PISCA also to um, train and serve as a Affordable Care Act navigator. And that was extraordinarily eye-opening to me. I had folks come in who, um, you know, they didn't qualify for uh, disability, but they were obviously not able to work full-time because they couldn't afford to go to the doctor. You know, I had a, uh, I had a gentleman um, who needed a knee replacement. He worked construction. He was in his fifties. He was too young to retire, um, and, but not, not fit enough to get on a ladder anymore. And I had to tell him I couldn't help him because we hadn't done the Medicaid expansion. Unfortunately, um, uh, we did pass the Medicaid expansion uh, law. It is waiting on the budget to be implemented. So it still doesn't quite exist in North Carolina, but um, we're that close. So um, like, I am a believer in government's role to rise people up and you know, provide those ladders of opportunity. Um, that some of us can unfortunately take for granted, but some of us don't. 
And so um, I'm still busy. I'm still a little involved in politics too. I um, uh, do fundraisers. Um, I go door to door. Uh, I went door to door for Sherry Be Beasley in the last election. Um, and um, in my opinion, we could have had a wonderful North Carolina senator, a woman with um, a lifetime of community service and uh, um, a former North Carolina Supreme Court judge. And um, uh, the senator that won that election just voted against, um, yeah, just voted to tank the economy um, because he didn't support the, the negotiated um, debt ceiling increase. So, um, so I'm committed and um, still able to, to roll up my sleeves and help. And, um, and, and I love North Carolina. So let me uh, touch on a couple points. First of all, uh, correct me because I may be incorrect in this. I looked through and I've, we, we've known each other now since I've been in Asheville. Um, you're not a lawyer by training. No, I am not. Right. So, right. And right. that that's how I got involved with so, some of these groups, because um, in the General Assembly, we come from all walks of life. Sure. All right. And so um, these are folks I could call on for technical assistance with a bill or just um, help understanding what what current legislation means and how it impacts people's lives. And so, you know, we all go to Raleigh wanting to do a good job for the people that we represent. I totally believe that on both sides of the aisle, but we deal with so many issues and there are so many details and um, we're just fortunate that there's, there are organizations in North Carolina, particularly if you believe like I do, um, that government has a role to play that can explain to you what public policies work and how they impact people's lives and help you craft legislation to do what um, uh, you go there to do, but not maybe not know how to do it. Well, I want to talk um, about how public policies that address social issues, and I don't like this phrase, but you hear it a lot on the news, that affect the lives of everyday Americans, because I'm not really sure what an everyday American is. But in any event, I want to talk about that. But I want to touch on one thing that you said that's important, uh, particularly as it relates to fiscal legal services, which is uh, a nonprofit organization has many offices throughout uh, North Carolina. It does provide Western North Carolina. Western North Carolina, rather. Right. It does provide um, representation in uh, disputes that uh, go into court um, through as a as a matter of a pro bono, meaning they don't charge the clients. But what you said that was some people don't realize is when people think of lawyers and the need to have a lawyer. I think the first thing that comes to people's minds is if I am suing somebody or I am being sued, or if I have been arrested and subject to the criminal justice situ uh, system, I need a lawyer. 
but that's on sort of the back end of it. There are a number of things that people need lawyers for or could benefit by having legal representation. And, you know, again, an obvious example would be writing up a will, but even if it doesn't come to that, just understanding, as you indicated, what are your rights and benefits, responsibilities, and what's the responsibilities of government, that if you do not know how to navigate that system, and of course, who does, because it's incredibly complex, sometimes intentionally complex, you need to have a lawyer. And and PISCA, again, not to just single them out, they do a variety of things you wouldn't necessarily think of for a pro bono legal service, such as the navigation of, that is what they call it, the healthcare system, helping Medicare and now presumably Medicaid recipients as well, access benefits that they may not be able to handle by themselves. Uh, and and that's, that's what you were tapping into. So even- right. you, know, you mentioned wills. Um, I remember one time, this was, a. Uh, uh, a few years ago, a client came in um, elderly and was actually dealing with a um, dealing with end of life issues. Um, and they weren't elderly, but they were, um, like I said, dealing with end of life issues and they had a child and they needed a will, not because they had um uh, assets to distribute, but because their biggest concern while they're terminally ill was what's going to happen to my child. And to be able to put that in writing with the help of an attorney and know that it, it would hold up in court if it was challenged, gave on um, that woman a tremendous peace of mind so that she could die in peace and she could not have afforded to do that otherwise. So, you know, just something that um, life is complicated, but if you've never dealt with these issues, you, you might not know how, how critical they can be. So let me um, delve into a, a sort of another facet of policy, politics, law, social issues in North Carolina. North Carolina uh, has a lot of similarities in terms of demographics and laws that have been on the books to other states in the region, other neighboring so-called Southern states, and to be pejorative, you could say the former Confederacy, whatever. But North Carolina has frequently been thought of as being more of a hybrid state that was open to purple purple is the is the is the what is being the technical used. term technical term which obviously is the merger of red and blue i've heard on uh, numerous occasions that um people that are in the business of looking at statistics say there's it's practic practically a 50 50 split presumably in terms of eligible registered voters. But nonetheless, and this is where North Carolina looks a lot more like Georgia and Alabama and other similar states, 
the majority, well, and you can go across the, the, the spectrum to, to Texas, but states where despite the political persuasion, so to speak, of the electorate, the legislator, legislature, which is typically bicameral, a House and a Senate, is, has a significant majority of Republicans and a minority of Democrats. And what that tends to mean as we are in this very significant polarization um, along political lines, which then dictate what the ideological lines are. And just in the last few years, North Carolina, well, the, the Republicans have in effect controlled, so to speak, from that standpoint, the state legislature for over 10 years, if my thinking of it is correct. It, it, it shifted from um, over 100 years of Democratic majorities to um, a Republican majority in 2010. Okay. And we're not, and we're not going to count the period of time in which it was Democratic, but the Democrats looked more like Republicans and the exactly. I don't think it's a pejorative exactly. name Dixiecrats is what they right. tended to be be called. Um, so yes, so but there was a period of time where Democratic uh, representatives at all levels did adhere to a more um, moderate, progressive, left-leaning, whatever line, but the state legislature in North Carolina in the last decade and more with a significant Republican majority. And then recently they now have a, in effect, a veto, veto proof legislature, which means to all those who follow politics, uh, even if a piece of legislation um, passes with um, uh, with passes by a bare minimum or with some Republicans, so on and so forth, or if or if it's, a, it's if it's more Republican oriented, the governor has a veto right. Most governors do, in fact, if not all of them, have a right to say, "I don't care what the legislature has said. I believe that this legislation is not good, so I veto it." But when you have a supermajority, so to speak, the governor's veto is ineffective. And that is what we are now facing in North Carolina. Other states are in similar situations, which tends to mean that even if you have a Democratic governor or even a moderate Republican governor who doesn't like the tenor or tone of legislation passed by both the House and the Senate, he may lack the authority to change it through the veto. And that has a significant influence and will continue to have a significant influence on the type of legislation which is passed in North Carolina. So let me um, ask you it, it, emboldens, it emboldens a lot of extreme legislation because there's no check on it. And the situation is even worse, as you know, um, because we used to have a check in terms of the courts. And um, the courts have been clearly 
politicized. One of the first things Republicans did when they took over the legislature was we used to elect our judges um, in a nonpartisan fashion. And, um, and we elected good judges. Well, one of the first things they did was they got rid of nonpartisan elections for um, judges. And, um, and, and as a result, um, millions of dollars started flooding into North Carolina to influence judicial elections. And now we have a Supreme Court in North Carolina that is determined to undo um, years of precedent. They're not even waiting for cases to come before them. They're reaching back, which is something courts typically are very loath to do. They're reaching back and said, we're gonna rehear this. We don't like what, what was decided. So let's just do this over again. And um, you're gonna see it have a huge impact on our districts. And if, if you look at the congressional districts and, and they're easier to look, up, look at because right now we have 14 congressional districts. Um, when, after they drew the districts in 2010, our legislature, um, in spite of the fact that more, Dem more people voted for Democratic candidates statewide than voted for Republican candidates. We had a delegation made up of 10 Republicans and three Democrats. That's how effective political gerrymandering is. And we're talking, just to be clear, I'm sorry to interrupt, the representatives to the U.S. Con the U.S. Congress. Got it. Okay, it's yeah. a little harder to see when you look at the legislature because there's so many. You know, there are 120 uh, reps and um, 50 senators, but um, it, so it gets a, a, a little more complicated. But it's the same concept. Um, when the court said uh, prior to the last election, these are politically gerrymandered. Districts, our constitution um, prohibits that. Uh, you must draw new districts. Um, and and uh, new districts got drawn. Um, the, in the last election, we elected, we picked up a seat. So now we've gone from 13 to 14 in the US Congress. Um, we elected seven Democrats and seven Republicans. My guess is they will redraw those districts again before the next election, and we will revert back to that 11-3, maybe 10-4 Republican versus Democrat. And that's just not representative of who we are okay. as a state. So um, I, I appreciate your, your bringing the issue up because I've, I've been a member of Common Cause for a long time, and that's one of their... Um, keynote issues because it is fundamentally undemocratic. Now it is totally too, true in the interest of you know full disclosure that Democrats did it as well. Right. Um, but what has happened is that with big data and supercomputers, uh, we can um, we can almost pick our voters one at a time. 
and put them in the district we need them to be for the impact that we want. So yes, Democrats were doing it, um, but they didn't have these tools. So it wasn't quite as effective. Now um, I can look at an address and because of the magazines that might go to that address, the car that might be registered to that address, I can model how the people who live at that address are likely to vote. And even if they're not, if, even if they're registered independent, um, I have a pretty good idea how they're gonna vote just based on this enormous amount of data that feeds the algorithms that do districting now. And so we can draw these districts with incredible precision in an incredibly undemocratic way. And that is, and that's why we need independent districting. So that's a whole nother topic, which I've talked about before, and we can get into it a little bit more, but let me, let me point out what I consider to be sort of three factors, and there's many factors, but three primary ones. First of all, um, it's unfortunate, but in today's world, and it, you know, we've had similar eras or epochs in American history, um, what party you're in largely determines what issues you're in favor of. In other words, the people that are de declare themselves Republicans and vote Republicans, in the, they vote on the sort of key issues that attract the most attention. Some of them are not what I would consider to be the most important political social issues of the day, but you know whether it's LBGTQ rights or whether it's what the the so-called uh, CRT, you know that those so social issues. If you're a, re a Republican, you know how you're going to vote and how you're going and who you're going to vote for based upon those issues because they're they're declared. I mean, it would be nice if there and I don't know what decade it was different if a a person who who was a representative or a senator, albeit a member of the Republican or Democratic Party, could not be so easily identified with a particular issue because for every issue out there, there's two, three, 14 sides to it. And, you know, bipartisan legislation was, is not completely a thing of the past, but it seems to be headed in that direction. The second point to make, and then I'll stop talking, is our U.S. Supreme Court has decided in various cases that it is not going to wade very deeply at all into the so-called gerrymandering concept, saying in effect, it's a political issue. We don't deal, deal, with, deal with political issues. And until and unless you can see a blatant use of race or some other ethnic demographic characteristics to create the districts, we're not going to take a case or we're not going to rule against a gerrymandering situation. That's important for North Carolina because at least in one iteration of the gerrymandering, the probably the prior Supreme Court said, no, we have evidence that race was a component in the way these districts 
were, were put together. But now we have a subsequent case, as you alluded to, by a, a, a restructured Supreme Court, so to speak, with a Republican majority that said, no, we don't think that, we, we don't care, or maybe they didn't even address it. They just said, that's, that's not the, the right outcome. And, and those two things, the Supreme Court, or three things, the Supreme Court not weighing in at the, at the federal level, and um, states being able to make these determinations on gerrymandering without too much intervention, and um, the fact that the, the, the parties are highly polarized. And I guess maybe the third issue that I would come up with is um, so much money is being used and driven into these campaigns. I won't just say it's because of Citizens United, but the fact of the matter is there's millions and millions of dollars that are devoted to single issues, so to speak, through the PACs and super PACs, largely escape regulation. So, and, and, what, and what I would say is that um, to a certain extent, we shot ourselves in the foot um, because in an effort to be more democratic, we turned over the primary process to voters. And um, years ago, uh, and I am not advocating for smoke-filled rooms. However, um, I think there's an argument to be made that is, it is the people who, um, people who get involved at the local level with their party, whether it's the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, they know their candidates. Um, and they know who has the capacity, who has the temperament, um, I think, to do a good job. And I've, I've come to change how I feel about primaries because I think primaries are a big reason why we are, our candidates are getting so extreme. In the last election, I think at least nationally, not so much in North Carolina, but nationally, we saw a big pushback on extremism. I mean, you, you probably recall the Senate was supposed to be um, overwhelmingly Republican. The House was supposed to go overwhelmingly Republican. And nationwide people said, we're not comfortable with that. We're, we're getting a little too far ahead of ourselves. We want to pull back. And those super majorities nationally did not happen. Um, but the candidates that are running are, um, they're being forced to extremes and then they're not representative of the rest of us. The biggest voting block in North Carolina is independence. And I think that's because most folks, you know, they're saying a pox on all your homes. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to vote my conscience and, um, and, but because they don't have a good choice, because we have, we have chosen these Democratic and Republican extremists, um, we end up with... Um, Extreme politics. I won't <laughs> name names, <laughs> but, um, but yeah. yeah, we've seen it in here in District 11. Well, I want to shift a bit 
to a topic that we talked about um, when we decided that this would be a good opportunity for you to be interviewed on the show, and that's um, public education. And I want to just introduce it um, by saying, again, in my my lifetime, my experience, my recent experience, I, I have the impression that North Carolina used to be considered a state that highly prized public education that was known as being interested in curriculum and programs that would um, provide quality education regardless of where you lived or ethnicity and so on and so forth. And they had a number of special programs and the colleges and university system in North Carolina were considered um, maybe not at the- World-class. World-class. Some of them, yeah, and, and some of them still are. And if you look at some of the bills, look at least at the names of some of the bills that have passed in even more recent times, they have, you know, names that suggest they're, you know, for scholastic achievement. I know I, I can't give the, the, the nomenclature, you probably can, but it looks like, yeah, that's a, that's a good bill. But if you read further, you find that there are um, exceptions and so on and so forth. But more importantly, what I think we're hearing is that there is a prioritization of how money is collected, which is taxes, how money is spent. And so even if there are Republicans and Democrats alike who are espousing the virtues of various kinds of programs, which are theoretically available, if those programs are starved from funding because taxes the taxes that are necessary to fund those programs are being reduced or not keeping up with inflation and so on and so forth, then the system, the public education system suffers. And I'm just about to get to a close. There are a couple of other issues that are interesting in North Carolina. And it's not just North Carolina. I think, again, a lot of states, many in the South, some scattered around the country, but there is this competition with public education and critiques of public education, whether it's CRT or um, LGBTQ issues or hist you know, systemic racism, whatever. But there is a push and there has been a push for a number of years to give quote choice to parents to determine not to send their kids to public schools, but to send them to charter schools, which are subject to some regulation, or home schools, which are many cases, and particularly I'm noting North Carolina, very little. And what used to be the notion that public education should be funded through tax dollars and these other, if someone wanted to choose to, to send their kid to a charter school, or a school that had a, a, a religious orientation, they could, but of course they would have to pay the freight for that. And they would still have to pay taxes, but increasingly through court decisions and so on and so forth, and through preference in this case in North Carolina with the state legislature to provide funding 
for charter schools and through vouchers and the like, and homeschools through various other devices, the amount of money that's left at the end of the day for public school systems is diminished. So I don't, do you consider that to be a fair sort of summary of what is at stake here? I think it actually even runs deeper than that. Okay. So for most of our history, North Carolina has been a um, rural and, and really poor state. Um, but governors on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and, and Democrats alike, um, understood that education was how we were going to lift up our fortunes going forward. And, um, and so Governor Holhauser was a Republican is one example. Governor Hunt, who was a Democrat is another example. They got funding for programs like um, Smart Start and More and For. Those are early childhood education programs. Um, and, uh, uh, and for teacher education, we had the Teacher Fellows Program, which was an amazing program that identified students in high school that would make wonderful teachers. And they not just provided them with tuition assistance um, if they worked five years in the public school when they were done, um, but, um, but nurtured them and mentored them um, through the process of becoming a great teacher. Our state constitution actually guarantees every child in North Carolina um, a free appropriate education. And, but what, what I saw in the General Assembly was that they prioritized tax cuts over investments in education. And every single year I was in the General Assembly, they cut taxes. Well, the first thing they did was they got rid of the graduated income tax and replaced it with a flat tax. What that means is every tax cut benefits the wealthy, people like myself, more than it does people at the bottom of our economy. Um, and then um, they started uh, eliminating their, their they've, they've actually passed legislation that will eliminate the corporate income tax. We're not quite there yet. We've been um, willing away um, at it. And then the third thing they did is um, they've been cutting income taxes. And what they're doing is they're shifting the burden of um, education from the state to our local governments. And so you're seeing um, Asheville and Buncombe, uh, their budgets include now larger supplements to teachers. Well, the problem with that is that 80 of our 100 counties are not doing all that well. They're low income, they have no tax base, they're losing, they're actually losing population. There've been huge demographic shifts. Um, and those folks are actually already, their property tax rates are already higher than ours because their tax base is so, slow, so low. So when we fail, 
to give teachers the raises they need just to keep up with inflation. They feel pressure to make up the difference and some of them can't. And what happens, they leave the field and that is exactly what we are seeing. Our poorer counties are the ones that are more likely to have classrooms without qualified teachers because they just can't hire them. Um, and uh, you mentioned um, the, the, the commitment that we had had towards education. North Carolina still has um, early childhood development programs like Smart Start and More and Four that are considered some of the best in the country. However, when you look at accessibility to those programs, can a three-year-old in a poor household that's maybe struggling with some trauma get into those programs? Not necessarily. There are waiting lists for programs or, um, it, or the child care centers um, can't hire staff anymore because uh, subsidies are so low. Um, and so we're, we're losing ground um, year after year, and we're not going to make it up if we don't stop cutting taxes. There was a landmark uh, court decision called Leandro. It was about 25 years ago, and it has been adjudicated several times, and they've always said the same thing. The state legislature must allocate more funds for education. Um, last year, the court, uh, two, or two years ago, rather, the courts actually gave them a timeline and a number. Um, we want the state legislature to allocate at least this much funding for education. And um, they didn't meet that goal, but they raised funding in the budget because of it. The legislature or the uh, Supreme Court has changed. And this budget is a disaster for education. Um, teachers are actually likely to lose ground. We don't know what the budget looks like. We've seen the Senate version, which gives teachers, um, and not all teachers, but gives um, uh, particularly uh, new teachers, uh, the average is about 3.4% raise over two years. Um, when inflation is predicted to be 6.5% over that same two years. Um, and keep in mind, their, the, their premiums for insurance are going up at the same time. So they're, they're actually losing brown. Um, premiums for their health care insurance. For their health care. Okay. A significant number of North Carolina teachers get health care for their children through Medicaid. Okay. Because they can't afford healthcare. To add them to a policy where they might, where that their employer has, but doesn't provide. Well, they, their free. employer is the state of North Carolina. Yes, the right. state of North Carolina does not provide healthcare for dependents. Got it. Okay. Um, and their incomes are low enough that their children can qualify for Medicaid. Got it. Well, let me hit a couple of the points that you raise and just give a little bit more context and ask you to respond to it. Um, first of all, let's start with a little bit in the way of statistics to talk about how 
significant the problem is in terms of teacher pay and spending per pupil. I've seen a number of different surveys and reports that seem to indicate that North Carolina is either at the bottom or close to the bottom in terms of compensation for teachers in the public school sector and that the amount of money available per pupil is also similarly at or near the bottom. Is that the way? That is, that is, that is absolutely true. Okay. Um, we also don't um, provide teachers with enough support. By support, I mean um, uh, school counselors, for example. We are far behind what um, is recommended in terms of a student ratio for school counselors, um, for school psychiatrists, uh, for social workers. And, um, you know, we're seeing um, nationwide, but North Carolina is not an exception here. Um, we're seeing almost a crisis in mental health amongst our children and, um, and teachers are having to deal with this right. because um, they don't have the support they need. Mm -hmm. So when, when you don't give them the support they need and you don't give them the pay they deserve, um, eventually they're, they're going to drop out. These are educated people. And, um, and, and like I said, we are seeing them, unfortunately, leave the field. Um, what, uh, one of the things that came out of uh, um, the Gates Foundation, uh, Bill and Melissa Gates Foundation, they did a lot of work on education. And um, although I think you or I could have told them this, the most important factor in a child's education is that they have a qualified teacher. And um, we are not funding the programs to develop those teachers. And then we are not paying those teachers what they deserve. Right. And um, our children, it, it just makes life so much more difficult for them. Okay. If, if they don't have a qualified teacher. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I just want to go back to one other significant issue that you raised and just make it crystal clear. Um, you know, you mentioned, of course, that um, the taxes have been lowered every year, it would appear. Um, and, and we're talking about state income tax. Right. And, uh, and that obviously means, again, there's less money that can be, be devoted to education, healthcare, other social issues. I'm sure that the Republicans who are defending those tax cuts, as you indicated, North Carolina, you know, like many other states, again, not just in the South, but primarily in the South, they converted from what was largely an agricultural state in terms of businesses and industries, whether it was cotton or tobacco or whatever, to try to become more industrialized, which tends to mean jobs that pay more because they require higher skill and so on and so forth. So with lowering of corporate income tax and phasing out corporate income tax 
and then putting caps and not having uh, gradations and all of that. I'm sure Republicans that are supportive of that, and probably some Democrats are saying, well, yeah, we want to attract corporations, businesses who pay higher wages and who will be taxed because they're for-profit entities into the state. And that in and of itself will create more money, which then can be used for a variety of programs. But the problem, it would seem to me, first of all, the question at the end of the day is, how has that worked? So if there's been over a decade of seeing that happen, but you're not seeing a vast inflow of money <clears throat> that could be used, then maybe it's not working very well. But the one obvious point that sticks out, which is if there's not a sufficient amount of money to fund teachers at a high enough level to retain the teachers, <clears throat> not enough money spent on pupils to provide all these additional services that kids need, um, then corporations are going to say, there's no reason for us to move to North Carolina because we do not have an educated workforce who creates um, high school students that can move into a college setting, take STEM, you know, the, the, the acronym, you know, for math and science. And so you, just because you reduce the taxes, if you do not have funds coming from some source to, supp you know, to supplement the reductions, then you're going to have kids, again, who cannot compete for jobs and corporations are not going to locate there. They'll locate in another state that has better education or they'll you know, continue to take jobs that could have been located in the United States and move them somewhere else. Is that are those fair comments, again, as to what is failing in the system in North Carolina and many other states that pursue well, tax cutting? Um, what, I, what I first have to say is they do have a, they do have a point. Um, uh, North Carolina was named the number one state for business uh, last year. And um, that's a good thing. And we have attracted a significant amount of major manufacturing into the state, some of it in uh, low wealth counties. That is absolutely a good thing. However, your point is also true. These two things can be true at the same time. When I first um, uh, entered the, uh, the General Assembly, uh, a local group put together a panel for elected officials, and they were there were five um, representatives from five manufacturers in Western North Carolina. And what they wanted us to know was their ability to grow their businesses is limited by one thing. And that one thing is they cannot find an educated workforce and the situation is desperate. So yes, a company may come in because they get a good um, a deal from the Department of Commerce to help develop the infrastructure that they're gonna need in terms of plant and equipment. And, um, and uh, and and they come here and they um, 
promise to do great things. But if they can't find the workforce they need to be successful, they will leave. And it happens. It happens all the time. You can't just attract business. You have to provide them with the workforce we need. We, one of our great drivers of um, uh, the man, our manufacturing workforce is our community colleges. They are having a terrible time um, keeping instructors because they can't pay them a decent wage. And if you don't have instructors, it's, it, it's just like it's true for um, K through 12. It's true for community college and our universities. Um, if you can't attract the best um, teachers, you can't produce the best students. And it's just, it's a very short-sighted strategy to think um, tax cuts will solve everything because inevitably um, they don't. So obviously what's required is a more, shall I say, nuanced approach to taxes, tax collections and funding through the budgetary process. Um, the North Carolina governor recently declared that there's a national emergency as it pertains to education. A statewide on, emergency. Statewide, I'm sorry, statewide emergency yes. on, a number, on a number of fronts. But I want to just point out one thing before I let you comment on that, because I know that you resonate with, with what much of what the governor was saying. If there is a primarily K through 12, I'm talking about a shortage of funds to the poorest communities in North Carolina, in the poorest counties, which means then that those counties have to try to figure out with reduced state funding, how they can use their county funding with smaller tax bases and the like. Why is it that Democrats don't seem to be able to attract the votes that would turn that situation around by having these rural counties, which traditionally have tended to vote for Republican representatives into Democrats who say, put us in, we will help to fix the taxing situation. We will help to create more available funds at the state level so that you can have a school that has competent teachers, that has books, that has guidance counselors and so on and so forth. Why is that not happening? Well, I, I, I wish I had a definitive answer for you. This well, you're is, not a politician anymore, right? so you don't have well, to respond but, to that. Even when I was, I don't think I could have answered that um, sufficiently for myself. But I think, you know, you already mentioned gerrymandering is in fact part of it. Um, but but it's not all of it. And we uh, we as Democrats um, are starting to recognize we we did intentionally um, try to reach out to our uh, rural communities um, in a way that resonates with them, you know, on their terms. We understand 
that nobody likes to be told um, how they should think or who they should vote for. Um, we need to have a little humility and we need to listen. And um, and I and and I honestly believe uh, we're trying to do a better job of that. Um, there are a lot of impediments. Um, one of them, I hate to say it because it's it's so passe now, but social media. You, you know the fact that we are fed information that is only based on what keeps our eyeballs on the screen. So the Democrats tend to get Democratic messages, Republicans tend to get Republican messages, and we don't even know we're not living in the same universe anymore. Well, and and how, how we break down that divide is a huge challenge. And we're going to we're going to need the social media platforms um, to help. I don't think that was ever their intention. Their intention, like any other um, capitalist organization, and I'm a big believer in capitalism, is to make money. And the way you make money if you're a social platform is selling advertising. And the way you sell advertising is to keep people's eyeballs on the screen. So if I sent you a um, left-leaning ad or left-leaning message, because they don't look like ads, if I sent you a left-leaning message and you click through, well, now I know what to send you more of. And that's exactly what they do. And then the same is true um, on the right. And that's another thing. It's, it's not just how we do our elections. It's also the fact that we are self-segregating and we don't even know it because we don't even know that the guy across the street is not seeing the same Facebook feeds that I'm seeing. All right. We just have a minute left. My sense is that you're bringing up all the right issues. My personal belief is people should stop worrying about social media and just start doing more organizing within the districts. And I know you, Yay! right. Let's just go out and shake the hands and force the Republicans to be on the same stage. And, and those are, those are my thoughts, but you have the last word. So let me let oh, you wrap I it up. Totally agree. Um, I had, I, I had the opportunity once to sit at a panel. Um, actually it was just a convening it, uh, leadership Asheville sent out an invitation Come one Saturday afternoon and and listen to a, a discussion, have a discussion on the federal budget. And just it was an interesting group that came together in Asheville because like half of us were loaded for bear de Democrats and half of us were loaded for bear Republicans. But it was a very structured afternoon. And the first thing they did is they talked about what's actually in the federal budget and what it would take to balance the budget. And then what they did was they said, okay. Here's a laundry list of things you could tax and things you could cut. So how did that go before I have to cut you off? Well, what <laughs> happened was we both moved towards the center. Uh-huh. Okay. I didn't want to raise taxes through the roof, and they didn't want to cut um, Medicare and Social Security. I mean, we're not as far apart as we think 
because we're being told we are. Uh, and that's where social media comes in. Lovely close. People need to talk to people in civil tones and reach the middle. Thank yes. you to my guest, Terry Van Dyne, eloquent, knowledgeable, helpful, a model citizen. Let's all exercise our rights to vote for the right candidates. Thank you, Terry, for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.